Hello and welcome to How AI Built This. Uh, today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Cathcart Associates, an independent technology recruitment company headquartered in Edinburgh with an ever-expanding reach throughout the UK, uh, Europe and indeed in Bangkok. Um, so thanks to them for sponsoring. Today I'm really excited to be chatting to Ewan Valevsky, uh, CEO and co-founder of Anomalous Technologies. Ewan and the team have built an inspection tool using AI um, for the aerospace industry, which sounds pretty cool and is pretty cool. Um, so we sit down and talk through his life, career and inspiration behind Anomalous um, and what he's learned so far. I hope you enjoy. First of all, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Happy um, to be here. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> so when we start on the podcast with a bit of background before going into uh, what you're doing now, I suppose. So you are engineer by trade? Yes, mechanical mechanical engineer by trade, yeah. Okay. What does that involve? Mechanical start, engineering. Start with an open question. Can you explain <laughs> mechanical engineering in less than three minutes? Um, <laughs> mechanical engineering is a, a pretty broad subject area. It covers any mechanical system, really. So it could be anything from something you'd think of as like a, a pump or a air conditioning system or um, more kind of structural things like um, suspension systems in cars. So any type of mechanical system, mechanical engineers design, manufacture, maintain. Lovely. Uh, so you did that in Glasgow, but from up north originally, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I'm from um, so northeast Bucky, in the northeast of oh, Scotland. Oh yeah, nice. That's yeah, a uh, hometown. Um, Where's that? You've got an accent there as well. I'm from Edinburgh, but uh, most people don't pick up the Scottish accent when I'm with uh, my friends or wife who sound apparently more Scottish than I do, which is a bone of contention when I'm with a bunch of people not from the UK. Yeah. I uh, think I'm English or Irish or any such number of places. Um, but no, no, I was born here. So, well, I don't. My accent's totally changed these days. I used to, so up in the northeast, we speak a, a dialect of Scots called Doric. And um, so I, I came down to Glasgow with an extremely heavy Doric accent and um, nobody understood me. So, so you trained yourself to train myself, and then <laughs> so I've kind of steadily like so went from the northeast Doric down to Glasgow, and then Glasgow down to um, Oxford, and then Oxford over to the US, and so my it just my accent's melted away. Yeah, you've just got <laughs> like a concoction of a lot of places actually. Yeah, uh, no, that's good. Uh, we well, can still hear a, a slight northern twang, so I'm sure you get abuse when you go home for sounding ridiculous. Yeah, exactly, exactly, um, and rightly so. <laughs> and what drew you to Glasgow? So I wanted to go to a good university in a large, vibrant city that was as far away from home as possible, without, but, but staying in Scotland, basically. So, uh, so Glasgow came up as the top one. And it's one of those things, I guess, I, I don't know, the whole kind of Glasgow versus Edinburgh thing. Yeah. I, I've always been drawn to the kind of vibrancy and slight edginess of Glasgow. So. Yeah, okay. I'm a, I'm a bit weird with it. Like, Glasgow's not a place I spend loads of time, but a lot of my friends love it and swear by it, mm. especially for like nights out and bars and yeah. restaurants, but... As a student, that's the most important thing, right? Yeah, now, that's actually. true. Nice out. <laughs> so, obviously, enjoyed your time there. Spent, what was it, five years? So, you got um, yes, uh, first um, class Master of Engineering? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so Congrats. Well, thank you. <laughs> was it five, well, I'd say five years of work, really. It was three years, two, 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 two years of hard work at the end to make up for the three years of messing around. Fair and enough. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I mess of that. I'm, I tried really hard in second year at uni, which literally counts for nothing. My first year keeps you at uni. Yeah, that's it. Second year, you kind of just scrape by, and third and fourth, you try quite hard. Yeah. I got like really good grades in second year, yeah. which didn't help with anything. 
<laughs> uh, it, was, it was a waste of a year, yeah. if you ask me. <laughs> so um, my, my dad used to always say, I'd come back from uh, university in the summer and he'd be like, so, so when are you actually going to start working? And I was like, well, I'm only really these matters from the third year on, so that's when I'm going to start working properly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then you had a bit of a culture shock, I'm sure, going from Glasgow to Oxford. Yeah, um, well, there was a cultural shock in between there as well, actually. I, I moved to Germany for a while. Oh, um, nice. Where about? Um, just beside Nuremberg. Oh, cool. Yeah, so um, I used to, after my um, undergraduate, I went to work at Adidas for a while. Oh, doing what? Um, I was like an intern design engineer, so I got to work on things like the World Cup football and Predator football boots, that type of stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, we're going to stop the job. podcast and we're going to talk about football boots. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. Did that just come about from the work you were doing at Glasgow Uni and like kind of scouting out for some sort of internship to do yeah so the exactly that basically so um, at Glasgow University uh, my master's thesis supervisor Ron Thompson he was really involved in the kind of sports engineering world which is actually quite a small world yeah and his I former imagine. PhD student um, was head of engineering um, over at Adidas so um, made those connections and then got a, like a design engineer internship over there did you have to start calling it Adidas instead yes. of the Scottish Adidas? Yeah, exactly. Because you're going to get lynched. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've got a couple of Germans in the office and I always, like, they always laugh at how we say it. Yeah. Um, especially one of the girls, Sabrina, she has a pair of trainers that her gran, I think, used to have. Mm. So they're like 50, 60-year-old Adidas trainers and they're still going strong, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, what was the coolest thing you did when you were there? Um, we got to work on the aerodynamics of the... The World Cup football. Um, so Which one? The Jabalani. Favourite. <laughs> Top three World Cup footballs. South Africa, right? Yeah, yeah, South Africa one. And um, it was, uh, so I didn't actually do the aerodynamics, but I created the models and the, the kind of 3D, um, well, at the time 3D printing wasn't a thing, it was like um, just a CNC machined sort of football that we then sent over to Loughborough actually to do some um, with the aerodynamics work on in their wind tunnels which was really cool so I was never sure that when Adidas and Nike and all these places brought out footballs and claimed the aerodynamics had changed on it like I knew they would have done research into it but I wasn't sure how much of it was like marketing like is this like genuine it's genuine they right. spend a lot of money. months money yeah. research y- like years and uh, lots of research goes into it because you saw like the big um, I can't remember when it was maybe like three or four years ago like all the goalkeepers in the Premier League were losing their minds because yeah free kicks were going everywhere yeah so that's like combinations of all that work to make the ball do that basically um, usually it's a combination of engineering um, designing a football that's stable and in flight and stuff like that and then product and product people coming along and saying but it doesn't look very good let's put these like big panels on yeah. it and that's so like the end part of like designing it when do they do they has also spent months with football players me to th- no, they do they? Well, they they do to um, test it. Well, they actually have robots that kick them. Um, no way. Yeah, yeah. So you've got ro- see ro- AI's taken over. We're linking it back to AI now. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> yeah, robotic, uh, robotic footballers. That's gonna be it. Yeah, there's a few of them at the team I support. Um, well, that's cool. And then you obviously finished that. Have a bit of a introduction to industry, I suppose. Yes, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that was yeah yeah. Um, did you learn much German when you were there? I only pretty much learned to order beer. As my, as my my go-to, one of my best mates is German, and I think I can get up to ten beers, please, if needed. <laughs> that's exactly that's I it. don't normally need ten in one go, but I could if I was pushed. Yeah, that's it. Um, that's it yeah. So yeah, then you end up in Oxford. Yes. Which must have been pretty cool in itself, going to 
the University of Oxford. It was um, a culture shock, to say the least. <laughs> um, um, boy from Bucky ends up. As I say, I'd never met a Scottish person before. <laughs> oh, th- there's a fair few Scots there. Um, it's um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's very different. It's a different place. Uh, it took me, I reckon, it took me maybe like three to six months to fully like just understand the place at all in any way what was going on. But yeah, it's, it's a, just because it's its own like it's almost got its own culture, right? Like oh, totally. it's, there's universities and a lot of them are similar, and then there's other universities like I think St Andrews Oxford Cambridge like they're yeah. kind of their own thing yeah they are they're they're very different um, it's, it's really driven by the probably the college system mm. like so they're rather than being a kind of a sort of one unified university it's actually split up into lots of different colleges ah, okay. and so the colleges each have their own unique cultures and little traditions and those all kind of mash together into so so like I don't know, when somebody comes to visit and says like we're going to visit Oxford University well, there's really no such thing as it it's like actually the individual colleges and what were you in was it um, like an engineering college is that like no so they, they, they're done just they're not done by um, subject area they're ah, just okay. done by like traditionally that was a college I guess ah, so okay. I was at um, one called Christchurch okay yeah and um, but then then there are departments that are separate from that so I was in the engineering department nice and did you always think you were going to do a PhD after Glasgow or no no I saw so I, I I kind of, I'd always wanted to go into sports engineering. Went into sports engineering and then I was working at Adidas, which is like dream job. And then kind of very quickly felt like I didn't know enough. Like so, I felt like there was like there's a lot of subject areas that I felt I hadn't been able to deep dive on enough to understand them well enough. Okay. So I really wanted to go back and do a PhD. And um, an opportunity came up at, at Oxford, and so I yeah, applied there and got a position. So that's amazing. And did you enjoy the kind of whole time there? At, at Oxford, yeah. yeah, I yeah loved it. Um, it was uh, to start with. It was like I said, it was difficult um, cultural, like sort of getting used to it. But um, really quickly, so I, like so I made some really great friends there, and had done. As I think doing a PhD is a very kind of intense, quite a personal thing to do as well. Yeah. Like you, you kind of learn a lot about yourself as well as, as much as like the technical subject area. And so I kind of. I had a great time there and really enjoyed everything I did in terms of the, the research side of things. And um, yeah, they kind of, I guess, really has totally redirected my life over the last little while. Yeah, so did that have, we'll get on to what you're doing now shortly, but did that have a bit of an impact on, or quite a heavy impact on what you're doing now? It quite literally did it have an yeah. impact. Um, so I, I studied impact engineering. Um, so oh, I did. Nice. <laughs> so kind of, I did, um, so my PhD was sponsored by Rolls-Royce, which is where the aerospace connection yeah. starts. Yeah. And um, I was looking at what's called containment casings. So um, so if you look around the, the kind of front of a large jet engine, yeah. you'll see like there's a big ring that goes around it. Yeah. So when, uh, if there's a, what's called a blade off event, when a fan blade comes off the, um, it gets dislodged from the, the, the disc, then it needs to be contained within the engine, otherwise it tears through the fuselage of the plane mm-hmm. and um, so that's to contain it you have a containment casing so I was doing basically um, studies on how material behaves when it's impacted at high speed. Oh nice um, and that was from the research there and you've continued that now so when you finished up was there a temptation this is I always ask people that have done a PhD was there a temptation just to like jump straight into industry or did the time at Oxford really make you think that the kind of academic route was really well suited because obviously you then went and spent a few years in academia yeah academia is a funny beast right and, and it's uh it's as much as people would like to say it's driven by you know like this thing of like sort of exploring knowledge and stuff like that. i think a lot of it's to do with like a competitive mindset with people as well like just like you know being the best at what you do yeah and uh, academia really 
creates that sort of framework for you, right? So, um, and, and there's a very clear progression that you can go through to achieve that, you know, so being, yeah. you know, like doing your PhD, going to do postdocs, becoming an academic at a top university, you know, those kind of, that pathway. That's quite structured, isn't it? Quite yeah. a structured pathway. And so, um, it's, it's very appealing to, I'm quite a competitive person, so it's yeah. quite an appealing path for me to go on that. And so, it, um, it kind of drew me in in that way, and I kind of stayed on that path for a long time before I kind of reassessed myself. So yeah, nice, and you, this is where you spent some time in the states, right? Yeah, yeah. So I spent um, two and a half, three years in the states. Um, I was at um, Cornell, which is in Ithaca, in upstate New York. Very nice. Um, Hopefully, you went there. Well, they get brutal winters, did they not? Absolutely brutal. Yeah, even from being from up north here, <laughs> oh, it's nothing. Absolutely uh, nothing. I've like, heard it's horrific. You know, people. I think it's funny when I say like I lived in the US. A, pe- a lot of people will say, "Oh, do you, do you miss the weather?" And I was like, "Absolutely not." It's <laughs> just horrendous. You know, two feet of snow and like having to dig the car out every morning. Yeah, no, no, right. no thank you. And was it was it similar in Pittsburgh? Or was that slightly better? Slightly better, but still bad. You can yeah. still get pretty bad. Yeah, you weren't. In, I think people maybe don't appreciate how weird and wonderful the states can be because like the difference in like weather culture. Oh, yeah, um, totally. Everything mm-hmm. in one country, it's, it's, it's mammoth. Mm. Yeah, no, it's totally. And it's the, it's, I mean, the US is bigger than Europe, right? Yeah. So, and maybe not quite culturally as diverse, but it's pretty damn culturally yeah. diverse, right? So there's a big difference from East Coast, West Coast, like um, um, down the Midwest. As I, live. Well, I spent a whole summer in uh, North Carolina, but oh, like goodness. on the edge of it. Right, um, right. So just going into Virginia, and uh, it was an eye opener. I spent uh, three months doing a camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With underprivileged kids, isn't that mobile listening? It's not going to be offensive. Uh, <laughs> it was a state-sponsored camp, whereas my wife went to one in Pittsburgh, I think, where it was um, basically like minor celebrities sending their kids for eight weeks and <laughs> paying thousands of dollars. Mine was like free. Yeah, at the free camp. So that was interesting from a cultural point of view, like yes. deep South America. Yeah, but really cool. I loved it. Well, my wife's from the deep South. She's, oh, no she's from Alabama, and she she actually went to university in North Carolina. So NC State. Yes, yeah. So yeah. I spent a little bit of time there with after camp because that's where one of the staff went to uni. It's a really cool place because I play football. They were showing me around like where they play where they play their football. They said they only had three thousand people at the stadium because mm. they don't really like f- soccer at NC State. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I, if I played for my uni, there's like three people. <laughs> And, no, and it's the national sport of Scotland. Like, this is ridiculous. You go see like Ohio State, the Buckeyes, and it's like you know, like a hundred thousand yeah. stadium or something. Like people, like, that. like people follow college teams, not sports teams. Yeah. So like the girl that I knew there, her dad still goes to Virginia State football games, even yeah. though they don't live in Virginia. She didn't even go to that uni, but that's his team. Yeah, like it's totally. manic. I, I kind of wish I'd known that when I was like sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, so I might have done like the whole like go out to America for a bit. To, yeah, yeah, to play sport because you're never going to get that anywhere else. No. No, it's, um, it's, yeah, the, the kind of college sports scene is absolutely bonkers. Yeah, there's a bit of an argument that's not a good thing, but we won't yeah, get into that. Uh, but all, all of the travels, and then you end up back in Glasgow, yeah, well, assistant uh, professor. Uh, yeah, so I was a lecturer slash assistant professor um, at the University of Glasgow, and, uh, yeah, so in, in the mechanical engineering. Um, and Did it yeah. feel weird to go back, or did it feel natural? It was... It was quite. It was quite weird. So, so my my boss there, um, Margaret Lucas, who heads up the Systems Power and Energy Group, um, she did my interview for a, as an undergraduate. No way. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. They must love that though when they see people coming back. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. Like so. Um, yeah, so I, so she interviewed me for my undergraduate position, and then she interviewed me for my um, for my actual like uh, lecture so cool. position. Yeah, really, really bizarre. And I suppose through that whole time, then, so about kind of six, seven years mm. after the PhD, did that all kind of did any did any of that time change your mind that 
you might want to go into industry and change that path that you maybe thought you were taking? Um, somewhat, yeah. I was I was always a very industry-focused um, academic. Yeah, so you were doing things like with industry, yeah. for industry. Like, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So most of my funding as an academic for research came from industry. Yeah, stuff like the Rolls-Royce thing you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was very kind of industry-focused research. So yeah, cool. I always had kind of one toe in, in the world of industry mm. and, um, and kind of eventually got pulled into that world. So. I think that's quite important. So this is what I, I chatted to um, Adam about on the second episode, but he did it, I can't remember what he called it, but literally like doing a PhD with an industry. Mm-hmm. So like it was like almost working five days a week, but tying it in with his PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, that was quite a good grounding for him. Because I think one of the things that, when I'm speaking to data scientists moving out of academia, sometimes one of their big drivers is they've not really had much of a industry impact obviously yeah. your whole time yet like you said you were dipping the toe in and you were funded there so there was an element of it but did you think that probably stood you in good stead overall i think it depends what your subject area is as well right so yeah. if you're if you're if you're like a theoretical physicist there's much example. less opportunity to be directly engaged with the industry yeah but if you're an engineer i think it's you know, it's, it's vital that you're. You kind of have to be, right? Yeah. Otherwise, like, you're not an engineer anymore. Yeah. Right? You're like, because it, by its definition, it's kind of applied science. Yeah. And so you have to apply it in some way. And so you probably want to as well. Yeah. Like if you're doing all this, yeah. like deep dive, like you said earlier, like you're getting really into something, whether it be in the aerospace industry or not. But you kind of want to go and see that working. Yeah. Or yeah. not working, as it happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, no, I, I I really do believe in that, and um, that it's it's really you know. And any engineers working in academia have to be engaged with industry. And I think, well, you, you see, it, like the universities have pushed very strongly in that direction. Now, yeah. And the, the funding bodies, whether it be EPSRC or Innovate UK, are really drive academics towards industry and engagements now. So I think it's, I think it's valued very, really highly. So. I think it makes sense. Mm. So then, obviously, we finish up in academia. <laughs> yes. And you end up at Medano. Yes. Uh, Lots to ask you about that. So I know some of the guys at Madano quite well. They're yeah. a good bunch. Yeah, they are. Um, so quite apt timing as well, given the news on them recently. Indeed. But how did you end up there? So um, it was actually through a recruitment agency. Um, Boo. <laughs> so um, I had decided that I wanted to to get out of academia, and um, I was keen to be in a more startup focused environment rather than a. Um, kind of big corporate enterprise environment. Is that from like a personality fit for you or like an impact kind of thing? A, a bit of both. Yeah. Is that um, I don't do particularly well when I'm told what to do. <laughs> and I don't do particularly well in um, bureaucratic structures. So enterprise um, is not probably not the best place for me generally. But um, and also from an impact side of things, I think you can have a much, much stronger influence on things when you're um, when you're working in a startup environment. Yeah, you get in early, you're kind of, I don't mean literally rubbing shoulders with the boss, but like all decisions come through the same five people. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not getting lost. Yeah. So head of R&D, so what did that actually entail? Was that more on the consultancy side? Um, no, it was um, on the product side, but we did engage in some um, sort of working with um, the consultancy side as well. Yeah. But yeah, so I remember like I was... So it was Ed that interviewed me for the okay, Ed yeah. for the the position, and um, yeah, it was it was really. I think it, I think Ed had a very open mind about it, like you know, taking somebody from like such an academic background as mine, yeah. and then also in a, a quite a different industry from where they operate, and then yeah. taking me into to Medano. So I think he had a really open mind about that, and um, and so it was. 
it was a really great experience working at Madano and, and uh, I learned a huge amount about sort of what needs to be put in place when you're scaling a business and um, what what it's like to hire quite the number of people that Madano hired over yeah. the time that they were you know, during that time I was there and um, and a lot about kind of good practices around product and deployment of services for um, software and stuff like that so yeah, yeah not a bit and it was you I think this is right I'm sure I read it uh, this is where you met your co-founder yeah that's where I met Matt I want to say yeah. Ad, oh, Matt Matt yes, yes. Matt yeah, yeah, yeah. why did that about uh, <laughs> obviously I knew his name so yeah no you met Matt there who yeah. what was he doing there so he was um doing UX design, okay, um, cool. UX UI design um, at Medano on the, the product Shark Tower. And um, yeah, so we, we'd we um, kind of met over coffee and we'd kind of, um, like sort of struck a good relationship and we, yeah, and sort of, kind of things snowballed from there. Nice. Yeah, as I said, good news for them, so they obviously got bought, so that looks like yeah. they did something right and then Shark yeah. Tower spun out so Shark, yeah Shark Tower spun out I believe they're actually in the same building that we're oh they're here we did an event with um, Craig uh, and Amy mm-hmm. in here uh, where we work in Edinburgh uh, a couple of weeks oh, just before Christmas on um, on kind of Shark Tower yeah. for yeah. project management mm-hmm. people or like people yeah. interested in project management mm-hmm. it was really cool it was really mm-hmm. interesting it seems like one of those ideas that somebody should have thought of like the, all the old school approaches to project management when everything else is advancing why is yeah. there not? Why yeah. is project management still like air quotes old school? Yes, yeah. I think it's, it's uh, all these types of things are like you know. I guess in some ways everything's going through like, some form of digital transformation, right? Yeah. And, and normally project managers were in charge of digital transformation, but their process wasn't really transformed. <laughs> so exactly. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's um, fascinating, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so then. Fast forward to, I think it's October 2018, was that yeah, roughly? That's, that's when we founded the company, so at yeah. that time we were still working at uh, Medano full time and then we um, left Medano in, um, been, well actually been this this month, like um, a year ago. Nice, so February 2019, Yeah. Uh, to, find, uh, to found um, Anomalous. Yes. Yes, so I suppose... I know you've been, you've both been doing some pitches. So what's the uh, what's the pitch? What's what's the elevator pitch on? Sure. On the company. So what we do is we provide a AI-enabled inspection data platform for the aerospace industry. So in the aerospace industry, um, inspections are a vital part of the process of ensuring that basically planes are safe to fly, that they perform the way they should perform, and that all the um, regulations are signed off on that are part of that process. So um, inspection is still a very paper-driven process. And yeah, I couldn't believe that when I read it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a ridiculously paper-driven process. I think it was an interview you guys did, I think it was maybe Matt, who, it was something about the error rate mm. is like remarkably high, and yeah. that's probably being kind. Like yes. it was like a 30% error rate or something yep. like that. And yep. then he was saying in the interview that that's probably quite nice. Yep. Like it's quite a, like a low figure in reality. So the yeah, so if you look at the, the amount of time that's spent on paperwork during an inspection process, it's about 70% of the time. Oh, Jesus. And then in terms of um, the accuracy, you're looking at about 20-30% error rates. That's when an inspector misses a defect. Yeah. Now that's under well-controlled lab conditions. Yeah, that's but, what it was. Yeah, but yeah, in yeah, reality, yeah. they can be a lot higher. Yeah, now, okay. You'll notice that planes don't fall out of the sky all the time. I was going to say, when I asked for the elevator pitch, I'd, the red, my favourite one I read from, I think it was an interview with um, with Matt that said, uh, 
he said, what, what did an anomalous do? And he said, we stopped planes falling out of the sky. Full <laughs> stop. And like, if the Argyle ended uh, there, yeah. it would have been amazing. Yeah. He went into much more detail. Too much detail, yeah. yeah. Matt, Matt loves a bit of flair of the dramatic. So it's, uh, Good. <laughs> and, um, uh, but yeah, so, but they, they don't fall out of the sky all the time. Right? <laughs> quite rarely, I think. Yeah, and so the reason that doesn't happen is because obviously there's loads of processes to manage that risk around yeah. it. So they'll be, rather than doing a single inspection, you do double or triple inspections, right? So you get the same part inspected by two or three people. Yeah, so if somebody missed it, the next person will get it. If they missed it, please, the last person will get it. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's regular um, inspections on the line, so as in like, uh, as it kind of sits um, on the tarmac, yeah. there's inspections that happen on a, a bi-weekly basis, on a monthly basis. It's all built into the process to manage that risk. Yeah. But with that comes a huge amount of inefficiency. Yeah. That's the thing I think I was quite surprised at. So basically the idea for Anomalous would be that your technology can do all of this inspection quicker, yes, more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And I think a key part, which I never thought about until I read about it, the, the whole argument of AI taking everyone's jobs, which we talked about in the podcast before, that's not the case. You're actually helping the inspectors yep. to make their job easier. Yep, which exactly. I think is the whole, that's the big thing I always try and say when I ask if everyone asks what jobs AI is going to take first. Mm-hmm. It's like all the skilled jobs like inspecting an airplane for faults to stop it falling out of the sky, they're never going to f- only trust technology on that. It's going to help them. Yeah, exactly. And so, so we often compare ourselves to the, the, the kind of healthcare sector in that regard. So if you think about uh, doing using AI to identify cancer and biopsies, yeah, yeah you see a lot of that, like articles like AI beat the doctor at yeah. detecting it. Yeah, all right. Yeah, great. But then the, the, the issue is that you know that it's not as robust in some cases. And yeah. So really, you always need to have a human in the, in the loop making the final decision. Yeah. Also, just for robustness and also for liability purposes as well like yeah. so yeah you can't so, blame a robot for all oh, the planes falling out of the sky like there no. needs to be there needs to be accountability somewhere yeah, exactly i, I kind of like a trace of accountability through yeah. the process and so now, now in 50 years will will there you know will, will that be completely automated maybe um but for the foreseeable future with our current ai technologies it's still going to have a human in the loop and your idea is now that so you can do a lot of inspection but what you want to do is train the technology to then spot defects it might never have seen before. Because obviously right now it will be looking for things that's happened in the past or like patterns or yep. something like that. Whereas mm-hmm. ideally you wanted to be able to spot things before they happen or recommend things early. Is exactly. that right? Yes, exactly. So you can prevent failures before they happen and take things out of service before they fail. Um, and you know enable that by, by providing a data platform as well. So... Part of what we do is provide that kind of a data layer or data platform that allows you to ingest all the data that you've got from all these different inspection sources. Because yeah. an inspection can't be as simple as somebody looking at a, a part, um, a simple visual inspection, um, and then taking a picture of it with a camera phone. Yeah. Or it could be something as complex as a ultrasonic non-destructive testing, for example, or um, X-ray imaging of a, a part to look for cracks and defects. And yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Obviously, also really exciting, and I can imagine the applications of it. But what uh, has there been any kind of real learning curves, big challenges in the first year? That I suppose there will be some you were expecting, having experienced Medano and the growth mm-hmm. they had. But anything that's been kind of just maybe unexpected? I think the 
the challenge that we find all the time is just at the moment we're still very early stage so yeah. we um, we're having to wear a lot of different hats right now so one thing I personally find particularly challenging is the context switching from you know being a doing a podcast right yeah. and then after the podcast I have to go and, and then like sort of develop a, an algorithm and yeah. deploy it and, and you're not doing one thing for yeah. a day yeah exactly like it's just everything all the time yeah so I, I think that's one of the big challenges in a startup no, I is having to wear lots of different hats and the context switching between them and the, the cost of that is yeah I saw something funny I can't remember who it was it might have been the guy that started Under Armour but he had one business card that said CEO mm. and one business card that said like salesman yeah, so yeah. depending on which meeting he was in he could like get yeah. more kudos or less kudos if he needed it like yes. it depended on where yeah. he was yeah exactly um, yeah. so it's yeah not not quite as easy in the world in the kind of times of LinkedIn but it's uh, I you should definitely have a head of data science business card a CEO business card <laughs> a head of sales business card just have them all yeah, yeah depending right, yeah. on who you're speaking to yeah, just, to just go to meetups every week <laughs> uh, I suppose why Edinburgh then because mm. neither of you guys are from Edinburgh but I know nope. you've both been based here so yeah yeah so um, so why you were based in Edinburgh um, I think the the quality of the talent and around data and machine learning and software design and development and there's just an extremely strong concentration of talent yeah. in Edinburgh and um, and that comes also at a relatively good price point compared to somewhere like London. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it's got a lot of plus points Edinburgh. Um, and so I actually live in Glasgow and commute through to Edinburgh and Matt like, lives in Edinburgh and um, yeah, so, so that's kind of our main reason for being here. Nice. Um, no, I think when I speak to anyone about Edinburgh, is the talent, and apart from you, everyone loves living here. Uh, <laughs> it's a great city to live in, but yeah, I mean, Classical, oh, it, Classical's it, great as well. Yeah, but Edinburgh's a fantastic city to live yeah. in, right? The, the quality of life here is pretty amazing. We've been, so uh, I'm sure we'll get on to it, but we... I'll just uh, jump on to it now. Yeah, it was, was, we've been... Um, We've been down in London for the last couple of months as part of the ATI Boeing Accelerator program. Yeah. And um, we've been living there, well, Matt's been living there pretty much full time. I've been down there except three, four days a week. And it's, it's really noticeable the difference in the quality. It's of just life. weird, isn't it? Like, like, London's a great city, but I think unless you've done three, four days a week for a number of weeks like, and actually lived there, I don't think people really get it. Like, it, it's mental. Yeah. It's. Particularly, so I've got a young family, and the, the lifestyle that we would have in London versus the lifestyle we've got in Glasgow and Edinburgh, it's very different, right? Yeah, so it's mental. Um, but I mean, it comes with some huge plus points. Oh, of course. Uh, particularly for startups around um, access to senior talent and um, and also access to investment. Investors, yeah, investors. Yeah. I mean, it's slowly changing, which is amazing, because I do a lot of work in Manchester, and a lot of those guys I speak to are slowly noticing the difference in investment. I remember when I, four or five years ago, when we first had conversations, they were all getting trains to London every mm -hmm. week to do mm -hmm. investor meetings because that was just what you had to do. Yeah. Um, and it's still a bit like that. Hopefully it will keep changing. But um, yeah, so you mentioned the Boeing Accelerator Programme. So that sounds really exciting. What, what does it actually mean for you guys? What do you get from that? Um, and is it one? were you the only winners or was it a selection of winners from so, a few hundred people? Yep, yeah, so there was... Um, 280, 280 startups entered yep. from around or all around the world. We were one of ten that were selected for the accelerator. It's amazing. Yeah, we're, we're extremely happy when we um, got accepted on the program. Big night out. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> reasonably big night out. And um, the yeah, so so in terms of what it offers us is, um, I think 
I often think that um, do, calling it an accelerator is doing a little bit of a disservice because I think that people are then thinking about you know all the traditional things that go around startup accelerators, but really it's actually for the way they've set it up is very much for sort of driving sort of startups into or uh, aerospace organisations and rapidly putting us on into the supply chain and giving us access to people within and the organisations. So Boeing are the platinum sponsor and then GKN and Aerospace are the um, gold sponsor. Oh, and so we've had amazing conversations with both companies where they've you know the there's been we've had people coach us into the different parts of the organisations and really open up doors that would you know take a lot of time. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, so I know from I mean, just from the recruitment world, there's certain industries and companies that, as a small tech recruitment company in Edinburgh, incredibly difficult to get into. So mm-hmm. like aerospace, defence, like yep. those types of companies like the Boeing's and the BAEs and all those companies where I'm sure you'll be targeting in terms of your technology. It's like the supply chain part and the procurement part is really tough. Yeah, extremely so Those yeah. those uh, those doors being open. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, no, I think that's so that's the I think the, the big value is really um, for that, um, and uh, so far it's been absolutely fantastic in that regard. And we've had um, we've had great feedback from both Boeing and GKN, and yeah, it's been brilliant so far. Watch this space. Yeah, um, and there was also the NTT. Open Innovation Contest. Yeah. That was Matt's kind of... So the first, there was a, the Open Innovation Contest for Scotland, which was yeah. here, here in Edinburgh. So I pitched at that one, and we, um, we won that event. Nice. Um, Doing you a disservice in my notes here. I was like, oh, Matt won an award for oh, this pitch. No, no, you, you got he, it. Oh, no, he, he, won a, he won the second one. Oh, nice, <laughs> one each. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a bizarre month that we like won like award after award. It was kind of like a, it was a, like December um, last year was just bizarre. It was just like Sounds amazing. every week there was like a new award that we won. So it was, it was a, a bizarre month. But the, um, yeah, so so we won the, the regional um, final here in, in Edinburgh. And then um, in um, I guess it was, was it January? Yeah, January. Um, Matt flew out to Japan and took part in the kind of global open innovation contest for NTT. So that I, sounds fun as well. Yeah. So I, I, just to, uh, I'd never personally, I'd never heard of NTT before that. Yeah. Actually, but NTT is basically Japan's biggest conglomerate. Yeah. And NTT Data is a, a huge data a kind of. Uh, can you think of like some electric signature, a huge yeah. data consultancy? Right. Um, and yeah, so Matt went out there, um, pitched a, at the event, and won what's called a Zama Awards, um, which is kind of like a recognition of the quality of our pitch. And we've subsequently been working with them to, to look at opportunities in the Japanese market. That's really exciting. And I, I suppose maybe what's, correct me if I'm wrong, but what sounds quite impressive about that one is. You can see why, like the Boeing and other one, the other sponsor you mentioned, would be interested in what you guys are doing because it's very specific to like their mm. industry. Whereas NTT Data was that a more open-ended. Do yes. you have an interesting data project to tell us about? So that's like anyone. Yes. So they, they've got much. They, I guess they see applications are much broader. Sense. Yeah. So you can get people who've got ideas from like every sector. Yeah. So that's, I mean that's amazing that you could you could come out on top on that one as well. No. Uh, yeah. It was, it was like I said, December was a. Interesting <laughs> <laughs> Before we go on to a couple other points, I have one of the things I'd read was the kind of potential exploration of using this technology in, I suppose, any industry that needs safety yeah. checks. Yeah. Which must be quite exciting as well. So you, it's not a, 
it's not like a siloed product. Admittedly, the aerospace industry is massive and you can do very well out of that. Yeah. Um, but it's quite exciting that you could potentially look into this in all. Totally, yeah. So the, the, way, the way we view it is that um, aerospace is our kind of beachhead deep dive market to start yeah. with. And if you're... Um, we kind of experienced this in the summer, like where we had opportunities across a number of different industries. And it can be very distracting as a startup founder to like when you see like all these different potential opportunities and it's like, ooh, shiny thing over here. Yeah. Let's go look at this. Ooh, shiny thing here. Potentially some money coming in, like just like just l- little carrots dangling. Yeah, there's just lots of little opportunities and yeah. it's really tempting to reach for them. And, yeah. But we found that really kind of focusing on one market just makes it so much easier to then sell into that market because you've got the you start building up reputation with like because you've got the brand names that make sense little case studies contacts because if you're working with Rolls Royce um, here then it makes a lot of sense to work with Boeing right they connect it it makes sense to like people so so we found that to be a really valuable lesson over the summer is that like focusing is really valuable I mean finding, finding that out in a really short space of time is pretty good as well but yeah, I suppose once you've got case studies under your belt, you can show the benefit of it. It makes it quite well, a bit easier mm. to then go out into huge amounts of industries. Yeah. So we see ourselves, you know, in, once we've kind of conquered the aerospace market, then then we can expand into oil and gas, potentially automotive, nuclear. Yeah, I was thinking the more the more clamouring for driverless cars, the more need for very tough inspections. I would have thought. I, I, I don't again. That's the, the kind of thing about the market thing. Yeah. I, I don't actually know how to view that side of things. I know yeah. that there's a lot of automated or attempts to automate those things. Yeah. Um, but certainly within like oil and gas, there's a huge oh, opportunity there, and um, in the nuclear industry. But for the time being, we're kind of aerospace. laser focused in aerospace. No good. Was the pun intended with laser? <laughs> like that. I suppose one of the big things then that we'll get to. You said that very much kind of early stages to you guys traveling all over the place mm-hmm. pitching for awards building the technology introducing yourself to the right people what what does 2020 look like and i suppose more broadly from a company point of view um have you guys put much thought into what it looks like when it isn't just the two of you yeah we um so we're actively raising investment right now nice um we we got a, a um, we got some investment from Boeing via the ATI Accelerator program, which is a, a really good a signal to the market in that regard. Um, but we are actively raising an, an investment round just now, and we'll hopefully in the next few months start uh, being able to build out the team. Nice. And will it be, because of how many different areas you could go into, would you look to build out the technical side of it and have some technical people to really make that priority number one? And then maybe some like sales and business and marketing people, yeah. or do you think I need to have all of them at once? So, my view on it is that, and Matt's view as well, is that we should we will build a technical team first yeah. to support us. I think that makes sense. And then in the early stages, we still will will still be early stage. Um, it really should be the founders that are selling. Yeah, and then going out there to the market. And there's that passion behind it as well, right? Yeah. Like a salesperson can be great, but yeah. will they replicate what you guys are able to do? And the detail that you would do it as well. And I, I think that you still need the, at the stage we are at, we still need the feedback loops coming in about, you know, those subtle shoulder movements when somebody, like when you pitch to somebody and they don't quite, yeah. like, it doesn't quite connect. Oh, such a learning curve for investors. Yeah. I mean, I've never done it, but from the people I've spoken to, they said like the first few inevitably 
either either knock them off their seats and you get the investment or it's like crash and burn and you mm. learn for the next one yeah, like yeah. it's almost like an iteration process totally it's a, everything's in, in this, at this stage is an iterative process whether it's selling to a customer or selling to an investor and so it's really I think it's really important that the, the founders are like at the front lines of that trying and getting the feedback directly so, yeah. so we're no, I like that so we're planning to build a technical team um, over the next sort of six months and then um, me and Matt still do the kind of primary sales function. You're still going to get involved in tech stuff though. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Have totally. to. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's one of the things like I, I struggle, I think I'm going to struggle to pull myself away from it, but you know, it's the question of like, um, where, where the value is in terms of my time. You start hiring like really, really smart people and you're doing the sales, but you also want to do the tech. Yeah. It's, trying to get involved. Yeah. Um, and when you build that predominantly at Edinburgh, project, you'll need some people maybe down south or? I think, our, our plan is to, to build the tech team like at HQ, Ed- yeah. HQ in Edinburgh and then um, potentially customer support teams down in the southeast somewhere. Depends on where your customers are and all yep. that kind of stuff. A lot yeah. of our customers are based in the kind of Bristol, Birmingham, yeah, okay. those types of cities. So we'll potentially need a, a kind of customer, customer support team down in that region. And then when you take over Japan, you'll need some Japanese speakers as well. well yes, exactly. That's a little bit more challenging than finding a Brummie. I'd be fine. <laughs> a Brummie who can speak Japanese, there's a challenge. <laughs> So no, that's exciting, and I suppose from the culture point of view, you'll because you're going to be growing it relatively slowly. You're not mm-hmm. going to be hiring fifty people at once. Yeah. You can kind of like get that all the way through mm-hmm. and make sure everyone kind of gets what you guys are trying to do. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose in the first year and a bit that you've done it, is there any any advice or or tips that you wish you'd known before you and Matt started? I think I'm quite. F- fortunate in having Matt as a co-founder because so Matt's been through this journey before he's had, he's um, run startups before oh yeah he's in a couple before right he's yeah. It, yeah so he's, he's um, he owned his own digital agency and he had a, a startup called nice. Agency Corp which is based here in Edinburgh um, and and so Matt brings a lot of experience in terms of how to run and manage a startup particularly yeah. during this phase so yeah. so Matt's learnt a lot of the hard lessons so I don't have to learn them <laughs> so, so, so that's, that's, that's um, I think that's, uh, that's extremely valuable in terms of what Matt brings to the table um, and but I'm trying to think what things I would um, suggest I think one of the things I'd said earlier is find your market and be focused on it it makes a big big difference yeah and uh, don't be afraid to iterate right now. I think it's really tempting, particularly if you're from a technical background, if you're a technical founder, yeah. solutionizing, we love to solutionize. We'd love to just find a solution and start building. <laughs> um, and so stepping back from that and saying, actually, where is the problem? Where is the value associated with solving this problem? And just going back to kind of fundamentals in that regard and making sure that what you're doing is adding value and people want to buy it and taking that to the market quickly as well. So um, I think, it's, again, it's very easy to hide yourself away in your office and... and so always code. building like the best solution yeah, and never all, doing anything with it. Yeah, never actually selling to NMD yeah. and checking that people actually want the thing you're building. That's one thing we could talk about a lot, not necessarily with the data side on the podcast, but where like, you see all these startups that, in theory, have a great idea. Mm-hmm. But they never get around to selling it, or they don't know how to sell it, or who will buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if no one wants, if no one wants to buy it, then yeah. it can be amazing. But exactly, what are you yeah. gonna do with it? Yeah, and I think you know, often to, the the challenge as well with the tech side of things, particularly around AI, actually, is you know, um, I saw the um, recent blog post by Andreessen Horowitz on um, the kind of AI versus traditional SaaS. Startups. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, they're saying that the the AI startups, the, the the costs are significantly higher than a traditional 
um, SaaS play. So if you're looking at the, um, you know, the the profit margins tend to be lower. Yeah. And so you have to really nail it because you know you don't have as much wiggle room. Is that where people maybe are failing? Not failing is a hard word. Where people are maybe jumping on that bandwagon too much around mm. AI when maybe what their niche should be maybe doesn't need to have an AI slant yet. Yeah, I, so I'm a big believer in that. I think, I think it's, a, it's a funny thing because when you talk to a good data scientist or a good um, machine learning engineer, they'll say yeah. the data comes first, right? Yeah. Get good data, then create the models yeah. for the data, right? Um, and it's funny because then when machine learning people then go to create startups, they create AI startups, yeah. not startups that are collecting data to enable AI. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good sense. point. Um, so, you know, I, I, I sometimes would say to people, there's no such thing as an AI startup. Yeah. You're, you're an R&D lab deploying, you know, because it's making al- algorithms, right? Yeah. Um, because at some point you have to interface with customer data. But I think a much more strategic and long-term view is to create a, a software package or platform that collects and manages data yeah. that then enables AI. That makes sense. That's the way I, I view it anyway. Yeah, and I think yeah, well, I think it will definitely work. Um, no, I can't wait to. We'll get you back on, and I don't know. <laughs> after investment, a little bit before the explosion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and see how it's all going. Um, I think one of the things I was talking to someone about before the podcast was I think one of the reasons I wanted to do these podcasts was for this kind of company. So before, like the big investment and the the large teams, more just at that kind of early stage shout about what you're doing and look at like practical applications of mm. well, AI for like we just said but yeah I think it's really exciting to see the things that maybe aren't on the front page of the news but mm-hmm. you can actually use and I know it obviously will affect us day to day because you're going to make um, airplane travel safer but you're not going to hear about it that's more like an industry thing Yeah, um, yeah. but it's really cool I, I think it's really cool to look at and um, again one of those things that it just seems to make sense when you've spoken out loud about it mm. so no excited to see where you guys go but yeah, no, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. But thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me on. What a great chat. Um, huge thanks to Ewan for taking the time out to talk to me about Anomalous, his experience of setting up his own company, and indeed working at Adidas or Adidas uh, on a World Cup football from a mechanical, um, from a mechanical design point of view. Um, amazing stuff. People like Ewan are exactly why I set up the podcast in the first place, telling the stories of people at the early stage, um, setting up their own business, having an idea, and looking to spin that off um, into a viable business. Um, so hopefully those guys will go from strength to strength and be another real kind of tech success story for Edinburgh so yeah one to watch out for for sure Uh, thanks again to our sponsor Cathcart Associates and to all of you for listening until next time bye bye